Well, good morning. It is a good morning, right? I still feel like a gangster with one of those things on, so. Okay. I got good news when I came to church this morning. I met Mike, and Mike said, Lou, we're all set for you today. Because, see, I was, I was staying awake. I'm not sure what's happening with my sound here. I was staying awake last night worrying about what happens if I move around? But they have more cameras now. And they can trap me wherever. And I, I have this tremendous sense of relief this morning that I'll be able to go wherever I want to go and, and hopefully say what the Lord wants me to say. And hopefully we're going to have a good time together as we study the Word of God. I was thinking this week about, it was seven and a half months ago, that Marguerite and I were in Florida. We visited with uh, Ruby and Marty, as we usually do for a little time, then went down to see my sister, and then went further down in the Keys to, uh, to visit my son. And there we were enjoying the, the warmth and the beauty of Florida, while you weren't. And then, of course, it happened. COVID. We had to jump in the car, make our way back to Ontario, and life has been changed, right? For me, it actually hasn't all been for the bad. Marguerite's been bugging me for years to do some things that I never did, and now I didn't have any excuse, so I finally got some of them done, right? And, uh, and then on top of that, there was a, the whole issue of books that I've been collecting that I really ought to read. And I got to read um, a, a lot of books. And I got to visit with family a little bit closer and things like that in our social bubble. And then I got thinking. And that's always a dangerous thing. When you start thinking, what I started thinking about was, I wonder what the church would have done in a time like COVID in time past. I mean, what actually would the church have done? As I was thinking about that, my niece-in-law sent me an article by a man by the name of Lyman Stone that actually addressed that question. The church during, if you will, times of crisis, times of pandemic, whatever you want to call it, times of plague. And he started talking about what's known as the Antonine Plague of the second century. If we can put that first slide up, that'd be great. It is up. Okay, I just can't see it back there. Okay. So the Antonine Plague wiped out... 25% of the Roman Empire. Think of it. One out of every four persons, gone. And yet, in the midst of that, the church grew, and it grew for one reason. It grew because Christians in those communities cared for the sick and the dying and gave a whole different approach to life than the worldly approach to life. Then he spoke about a a second plague, the, the, the Cyprian plague. 
And this Cyprian plague is a, a third century plague. It really brought great difficulty to the Roman Empire, but once again, the church grew. And the church grew because it heeded the needs of the sick and the dying in the community. Then he fast-forwarded to the time of Martin Luther. During the time of Martin Luther, there was a, in Wittenberg, there was an outbreak of the bubonic plague. Everybody urged Luther to run for his life, to go to a safe place, but Luther wouldn't do that. Actually, it cost him. His daughter Elizabeth died as a result of the plague. But Luther said, we must stay at our post. The interesting thing is, Luther says something even more than that. He writes a tract about why Christians shouldn't flee the plague. And in particular, he talks, as I said, about Christians staying at their posts, Christian doctors staying at their posts, Christian magistrates staying at their posts, Christian pastors staying at their posts. And then he says this, that plague gives us no right to resign our duties. These duties become a cross for us, a cross upon which we may actually die. As you look at the early church, the early church looked at pandemics and things like plagues as opportunities to reach out and touch the lost, to make a difference in this world. I think that's an important thing. I can remember there were days when, and I think you can remember too, in a crisis like this, somebody would have called out, some governmental figure would have called out somewhere for a national day of prayer. Haven't heard of any lately, have you? Okay. That somebody would have called for a sacred assembly, according to the book of Joel, or something like that. Or somebody would have called out for a, a time of confession and forgiveness, or fasting and prayer, or whatever, but not now. And, and more than that, there would have been times when people would have been asking the big questions, which we call them the ultimate questions, you know, why this, why now? And to cut to the quick, why God? What's going on, God? Why is this happening now? Nobody's asking the question. Because actually, God's irrelevant in our society. Why would you ask somebody you don't believe anything about? It's, we just don't do that anymore. Self has become we can fix it ourselves. Maybe, maybe not. We're not doing so good so far. There would have been a time when people would have called out to Jesus. They may not have believed in him. They may not have known who he was, but they might have heard there's something mystical at least about him and call out to Jesus and say, help us in this distress. Help us in our problems. But no more. Now, I don't know about you, but 
I was watching the news one evening. As I was watching the news, there was a rally taking place in Charlotte, North Carolina. In Charlotte, North Carolina, the crowd was rioting. They were, for certain, rowdy. And rather than calling on Jesus, they were cursing Jesus. I can't even use, I'm pretty risky, but okay, I'm not using the language here that they use. You talk about defame, you can watch it on YouTube, about defaming Jesus, about denigrating Jesus, about blaspheming the name of Jesus. That's what was taking place. Now, while I was watching all of that and in my reading time, I was also reading the Gospel of John. You know I like the Gospel of John. I had gotten a, another commentary on the Gospel, and I thought, I'm going to work my way through that commentary and, and see what he said. And once again, I was reminded as how absolutely relevant the Gospel of John is to us in this time. Because in the time of John, literally, Jesus was being ripped out of heaven by the Gnostics and was being reduced to something less than God. And God, well, he was just one God, a bunch of old, you know, amidst a bunch of other gods. So what John has to say and what John does in the gospel is really important. These things, says John, well, he says many other things did Jesus that are not recorded in this book. But these things, these things are written that you might believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing you might have life through his name. As I was reading the Gospel of John, and I was thinking about this crowd in Charlotte, North Carolina, I was asking myself the question, what don't they understand? Don't they understand that Jesus is from above? Do you know how many times John uses that phrase about Jesus? He's from above. He's from above. He's from above. And he is sent. He's the sent one. He's sent. He's sent. He's sent. He's sent. You can get here by accident. Then you go on. This Jesus is the creator of the universe. This Jesus is the sustainer of the universe. This Jesus speaks creation into being. This Jesus is the son of God. This Jesus is the author of life. This Jesus is the one who is going to come again. I love that little phrase, don't you, in the Apostles' Creed. The third day he rose from the dead. He's seated at the right hand of God the Father Almighty. And from there he is going to come and to judge the living and the dead. What don't they get? I got to tell you, I was getting really mad. I guess I should use the word angry. It might have bordered on madness for a moment. Angry. I was, I was getting angry, and I decided I was going to write a message that was going to address this thing. You can't do that to my Jesus. You can't say those kind of things. I want to write something like John wrote. I want, I want to take you right to task and say, you better get clear on the facts. And God said to me, you're not writing that message. Okay? 
you're not going to write that message. So my initial plan for this Sunday crashed and burned. And then God gave me three reminders. Funny how God works, isn't it? Three reminders. The first reminder was a 50-year-old reminder. I was reminded of a time when I was doing my doctoral studies at New York University, and I was in a seminar where the name of Jesus was being denigrated, reduced, blasphemed, whatever you want to call it. And as I listened to this stuff, I wanted to react. I wanted to respond. I wanted to come to God's defense. And at that point, God spoke. And basically he said, you're going to defend me? <laughs> Get in life. Yeah. You're going to rescue me? I can take care of myself, Lou. And I thought I had remembered that lesson really, really well, but evidently not as well as I thought I had remembered it. Otherwise, I wouldn't have been so angry and frustrated and wanting to write that polemic message. And then I was reminded by God that this isn't the first time in history something like this happened. And there was a time when there was another crowd that was mocking Jesus, that was spitting at Jesus, that was cursing Jesus, that was taunting Jesus. You saved others. Can't you save yourself? If you're the son of God, come down off that cross. And Jesus doesn't write an angry letter to them. He says what? Luke 23, 24. Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. And then I was reminded of a third thing. I was reminded as I was studying the Gospel of John of the, the importance of the first 18 verses of that Gospel, the prologue. It is one of the most tightly knit theological statements you can ever find anywhere. In fact, I don't know if there are four verses in the Scripture that are any more powerful than these. In the beginning was the Word. The Word was with God. The Word was God. The same was in the beginning with God. All things were made by Him. Without Him, nothing was made that was made. In Him was life. And that life was the light of men. And that light shone in the darkness. And the darkness could not destroy it. There's power in those words. And I began thinking back. This God who spoke, this Logos, this Word of God who spoke, didn't stop speaking at creation. As you read your way down through that text of the prologue, you come to verse 14, and the Word became flesh. And it dwelt among us, and we beheld his glory, the glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. This Son of God comes into human history, and he speaks. He speaks verbally. John's gospel just 
full of statements that Jesus makes that are incredible. I am the true bread that comes down out of heaven. I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will never walk in darkness. I am the gate or the door. I'm the good shepherd. I'm the resurrection and life. I'm the way, the truth, the life. I am the true vine. I am, I am, I am. And were that not enough, he does things like this. He, he goes to a lame man and he says, hey, rise, get up and walk. And the man does. He goes to a blind man, sends him to the pool of Siloam, puts clay on his eyes, sends him to the pool. He's healed, stands in front of a tomb and says, Lazarus, come forth. And he comes forth. We're talking about that speaking. That's the God who speaks. But he doesn't just speak Verbally. He speaks visibly. See? And the visible speech of God is something like this. The word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld his glory, the glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. If ever there was an image bearer, of what God wanted the world to see is Jesus Christ. The author of Hebrews puts it just a little bit differently. He's the brightness of God's glory. He's the express image of God's person. It's incredible. And Jesus comes into the world so that you and so that I may see exactly who God wants us to be, who God intends for us to be. That's the message. That's why Paul will say things like that be conformed to the image of God. I beseech you therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, what? That you be transformed by the renewing of your minds so that what? You can look like Christ. And Jesus comes and he gives that message. And that's the message we often get. But he doesn't just come as, if you will, a picture of what God wants us to be. He comes with the means to get us there. It's not just about truth. It's about grace and truth. Sometimes we start talking about things like grace. And by the way, I thought Josiah's message maybe three, four weeks ago on Thanksgiving was incredible on God's grace out of Ephesians chapter 2. And Jim's message really spoke to me too. And Andrew's message last week about hope was um, important for all of us and for me in particular. Christians often play theologian. You know, it's a whole lot easier to talk theology than it is to live life. It's much easier to talk about theology than it is to live truth. So I want us to do something today. I want us to see how John drives home this message that he brings up in the prologue, how he drives this home and shows us how this grace and truth thing works. So let's take a look at a few texts. We're going to look at five little incidents this morning, if I have time for five. If not, 
Here's what I like about the narratives, the Gospels, Old Testament narratives. They tell the same story over and over and over and over and over. And, and then kind of the Holy Spirit says, did you get the message yet? So that's what we're going to look at. It'll be the same plot, the same storyline. The characters will change, but the truths will remain the same. We turn over to John chapter 2. There's a feast, right? There's, there is a wedding feast taking place. Jesus is in Cana of Galilee. And, and you remember, Jesus' mother comes to him and says, they have no wine. Now, you have to understand, when I first learned about this miracle, I was a Baptist, a hardcore Baptist. So, in hardcore Baptist churches, it was really hard to explain how Jesus made wine to start with. Okay. Any wine. But 600 liters of wine was right over the top. Okay, I mean, I just... You couldn't comprehend that one at all. And then, of course, there's all of the, the theological infighting about what this miracle means. Is the blood, uh, is, the, is the wine picturesque of the, of the blood of Christ? Or is it the celebration that pictures the coming kingdom when we're all going to enjoy being together and celebrating, uh, eating with Jesus and whatever? Or is it a coming of the Holy Spirit? What's going on? You can spend years fighting that and miss a truth in this text that is so obvious. Okay. Because the text starts not with the supposition of somebody or the speculation of somebody. It starts with a hardcore fact. They have no wine. That's the fact. Jesus' mother goes to Jesus and said, Jesus, they have no wine. Now, you can argue about how Jesus addressed his mother and, and whether he should have used the word woman or, or why on earth she ever thought he was going to do a miracle. I don't want to go there this morning. I want you to think about this in a different way. It's your wedding day. It's your reception. All, but that was a communal event. Everybody is there. And, and here's what's going to happen. You run out of wine before the feast is over. And what's everybody going to remember for the rest of your life? <laughs> hey, you remember the wedding of so-and-so and so-and-so. It was going really good until... They ran out of wine. Can you imagine that? They ran out of wine. And you can hear all of the gossips in the community, right? You can hear all of the cynics saying, oh, man, can you believe that? Too cheap to buy enough wine or too foolish to plan to have enough wine or, 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 right? You can come up with all of the things that you can put in there. They are living in a state uh, of near absolute embarrassment. When anybody thinks of that wedding, they are going to think of Disgrace. Except Jesus comes. They're never going to run out of wine at that feast. Right? 
And all of a sudden, we see this Jesus who comes into a situation where there is potential disgrace coming alongside this family and saving the day. That's grace in action. Now, I don't know about you, but I know a lot of people who live in disgrace because of some silly indiscretion that they committed. Maybe some bad financial investment. Maybe some moral indiscretion. Maybe had friends that were horrible influences on their lives. The story could be any story. And you and I have the opportunity to step into those lives and to bring grace where there was disgrace. To go to those people, maybe it means physically help them, maybe it means financially help them, maybe it means emotionally helping them. We step into their lives and say, you know, know what? Let me take you back in my life to when I did something really, really dumb. And Jesus came along, changed my life, changed my circumstances, changed everything. And now I'm here to tell you, I'm with you. We can walk through this together. God's grace can change your life. We'll go to a second story. It's a story over in John chapter 4. These stories are so well known, our minds kind of have pathways through them, so that it's hard to get outside the story uh, as we know it or have memorized it, right? Jesus, the scripture says, needs to go through Samaria. Why he needs to go through Samaria, we're not told. Some people make a great thing out of the fact that he has a divine appointment with this woman. Other people say, no, there's problems in Judea, and it's time for him to get out of the territory, and he's heading for Galilee, but he's taking the shortest route possible. But we know that good Jews didn't often go through Samaria, and we know that good Jews didn't often talk to women, and good Jews didn't often talk to Samaritans, at all, and good Jews certainly wouldn't talk to sinners. And this woman, the text leaves no doubt in our minds that either she is the black widow of wives because she's been married five times, so we're left with a couple of, a couple of possibilities, right? One is that all five of them died off, in which case the next guy says, I'm not marrying you, with some reason, I suppose. I want to submit to you today that if ever there was a woman in the scripture who was looking for love, if ever there was a woman who was looking for stability, if ever there was a woman who was looking for significance, if ever there was a woman who was looking for safety, this woman is that woman. 
And we all know about the spiritual part of the conversation that takes place about the water at the well at Sychar. It's an incredible well. It's one of Jacob's wells and whatever. That's an important part of the story. And the fact that Jesus is the Messiah is also an important part of the story. But once again, there is a line in this text that you need to pay attention to. As you come down to toward the end of the story, it's just when the disciples come back from buying lunch for Jesus that she leaves and goes back into the community. She's so excited to go back to the community that she forgets the water pot that she has, right? Now she makes her way back into the community, and what does she say? Come. Come see a man who told me everything that I ever did. He knows a whole lot more about her than about five husbands and the guy she's living with. He knows everything. And she says, you've got to meet this guy. For the first time in her life, Grace. The first time she feels clean, cleansed, pure, safe. Why? Because of God's grace in Christ. The other day, Marguerite was out trimming some grass in the front yard. And one of our neighbors came across the street, and Marguerite decided to stop trimming and it looked like this woman wanted to chit-chat for a few minutes. She began to tell Marguerite that her dog had just died last week, and that was a huge loss in her life. I won't miss the dog too much, but she will. And then, for some reason... Her husband decided to sell their gives us no right camper trailer. Now the husband has all sorts of toys. He's got an antique tractor collection. He's got a new John Deere with every possible attachment that you can ever put on a John Deere anywhere. And he sold her trailer. Her safe place. How would you like to be in that house? All she wanted was for Marguerite to listen to her and then begin to tell her about how God can help us through our disappointments in life. It's grace and truth. We go to the next chapter, chapter 5. The story is the same. It's the story of the lame man. He's been there 38 years. He's at the pool of Bethesda. And according to tradition, there was a time when this pool bubbles, maybe because an angel is touching the pool, maybe not, whatever. It bubbles, and as long as it's bubbling, if you can get into the pool, you're good to go. You're going to be healed. For 38 years, he'd been waiting for that to happen. You talk about one frustrated individual. 
38 years of hoping against hope that he'd be able to get there, but he can't get there. Jesus asked him the question, do you, do you want to be healed? And, and he says the definitive statement in this text, I have no one to help. There's nobody to help me. And you and I know that Jesus is there and Jesus is God's grace and God's grace is going to change his life and God's grace is going to change the situation. And this miracle leads to an incredible story about who Jesus is and about the Sabbath day, all of those theological things. But the, the thing we're focusing on today is that the grace of Jesus comes into this situation and changes this man's life. You're probably looking at me saying, Louie, are you crazy? Are you telling me to go out there and do miracles? You, go, you can do miracles? You know, I'm going to go to some guy who's, who's lame and say, hey, you're good, go. I've never done anything like that. Anybody in here done a miracle? I, if, if I've done one, I don't know it. I have seen a lot of things answered to prayer that have been incredible and inexplicable. But I've never been able to say to anybody what Jesus says to this man, rise, take up your bed, and walk. I've never been able to do that at all. But here's what you need to understand. There's all sorts of crippled people around you. I was reading the other day that due to COVID, opioid crisis, Opioid crisis has gone up incredibly. Depression is up incredible. Depression can cripple you. Paranoia, paranoia can cripple you. Alcoholism can cripple you. Drug use can cripple you. A broken marriage can cripple you. The death of a child can cripple you. The death of a loved one can cripple you. There are all sorts of things in the world that can cripple people and do cripple people. And you and I need to come into those situations with God's grace so that those people can't say what this lame man said, I have no one to help. You're getting the point. Right? We're God's grace. In many ways, we're God's grace to broken people. And we're God's truth to broken people. Many times it takes people to see the grace of God before they can hear the truth of God, you, you go to the next story. It's the story of the blind man. I'm not going to go much into the story, but he's an object of ridicule. Who sinned? This man or his parents? Everybody's saying like, hey, wonder what mom and dad did that he was born like that. Or what did he do before he was born? What did he do in the womb that made him such a piranha, if you will, before God? You know, Jesus says it was neither his parents nor him. Jesus makes clay, puts it on his eyes, sends him to the pool of Siloam. The Pharisees 
cannot see it. Even the parents aren't sure of what they're seeing. It is such a blind world. I don't know about you, but as I look at the world now, it could be my old age, and I get more skeptical and whatever. I look at the election south of the border and all of the hostility and the anger and say, we're in a dark place. And it's getting darker by the moment. And Jesus says to you and he says to me, you're the salt of the earth. You're the light of the world. Let your light so shine before men that they might observe your good deeds and glorify your Father who is in heaven. Or as Paul puts it, you're like stars shining in a universe. In this dark world, if ever there was a time when Christians needed to live like Christians, now is that time. There's one more story I'll just touch on. 11th chapter of John's Gospel. Lazarus is dead. He's really dead. He's four days dead. For the Jewish community to believe about death, they, they kind of thought that the soul hung around for three days and it might actually enter back into a person. But on the fourth day, they finally said, he's dead. He's done. Finished. And on that fourth day, Jesus stands before that tomb and he says, I am the resurrection and the life. The one who believes in me, even though he were dead, yet shall he live. And whosoever lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? Lazarus, come forth. And Lazarus comes forth. A few weeks ago when Josiah was speaking on Ephesians 2, he started with those first couple of verses, you were dead in your trespasses and sins. We live in a world that is filled with dead men walking. They look like they're alive. Spiritually, they're dead. And Jesus says, I, I give my sheep life, abundant life, more abundant life. And then Jesus says something very interesting. It's the thing I really want to say today. It took me a long time to get there, but this is what I really want to say. As the Father sent me, so send I you. Okay? Grace 
and truth. Grace and truth. Grace and truth. Grace and truth. But you can say, how? It's interesting, you know, when we don't really want to do something, we just kind of ask questions. You might remember when Jesus is dealing with the lawyer, you know, what's the greatest commandment? Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind. His second commandment is love your neighbors yourself. And then he's thinking like, nah, I don't want to do that one. Who's my neighbor? Right? Answer a question with a question. It's kind of like the uh, political debates, right? How? Let me tell you how. Three easy steps. Three really simple steps. This is not a new message. This is like bing, bing, bing. Okay, so don't get nervous. Step one. Live a life of joy. How? Here's how. Stop belly aching and complaining. Or murmuring and complaining like the Israelites in the wilderness and count the blessings of God in your life every day. I was with a friend yesterday. I was so excited being with this friend. Do you know why? Because he kept saying, no, Lou, I'm such a blessed man. I, I've got such a wonderful wife. I've got a wonderful child. I've got a wonderful home. I've got a wonderful job. And I'm like, wow, this is great. I don't normally get to people talking like this. I get people talking about how tough life is, how difficult life is, how miserable their wife is, how bad their kid is, and what on, on and on the story goes. And this guy is blessing me all over the place by saying, God is good, you know. Count your many blessings, name them one by one, count your many blessings, see what God has done. That's step one. Step two is look for opportunities. Some of us are walking through the world blind. We're just walking through the world doing our own thing. We're not here to do our own thing. Reckon yourselves indeed dead unto sin, alive unto Christ. Don't you know that you were slaves to sin? You're now slaves to Christ. So get in the game. Look for opportunities. And if you don't see any, create some. That's the third point. The other day, Marguerite, by the way, it was the second thing. She saw an opportunity. She kind of saw in Amy's face that something wasn't quite right, and she stopped doing what she was doing so that she could talk with Amy. Okay? It's time to do that sometimes. It's not your agenda. It's God's agenda that we need to get in touch with. Okay? Oh, by the way, as a result of that little conversation, they're coming for dinner Tuesday evening, and we can talk more about what God wants in their lives and how to reconcile those kinds of problems. Look for opportunities. There's a lot of people that haven't been able to come to Oak Ridge for a long time because of COVID, but not just because of COVID, because of old age, because of transportation issues, whatever. You could call them. Better yet, you could go and knock on their door, 
say, wait a second, I, I gotta have spatial distancing, okay. Knock on their door, leave a little care package and run, okay. You get the point? You can do these things. These aren't huge things. These are simple things. They're meaningful. Write letters. Handwriting is kind of a nice thing to get once in a while. I know it takes forever with Canada Post to get your mail, but it'll get there sooner or later. And people will be able to read it again and again and again. And so what I want to leave you with this morning is this. Just as Jesus came into the world full of grace and truth. And by the way, John really wants to stress that grace. He came with grace, not just grace, but grace upon grace. Lots of grace. Be grace in your life context. Be truth in your life context. And the world will be changed. And that plague stuff, you know. The church growing because it was looking after the needs of people. May God give us the ability to commit ourselves to doing that.